Please turn to Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. While you're turning, David Jeremiah tells the story about a persecutor of the Jews in a country that was at one time behind the Iron Curtain. He asked one of the Jews who had been tortured, what do you think will happen to you and your people if we continue to persecute you? Ah, the result will be a feast, replied the Jew. Pharaoh tried to destroy us, and the result was Passover. Haman attempted to destroy us, and the result was the Feast of Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy us, and the result was the Feast of Dedication. Just try and destroy us. We'll start another feast. Today we're going to be looking at the divine predictions concerning Persia and Greece as they relate to Israel as we look at Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8. Now we're now in the part of Daniel that has a particular message for Israel. So we switched languages. We've gone from Aramaic last chapter, now we're back in Hebrew, which is of course a language that would be understood just by the, by the Jews rather than by the entire Gentile world at the time. And so in this message to Israel, then, the first thing we encounter is Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Starting off in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. The setting for this vision is the third year of the co-regency of Belshazzar and his father Nabonidus, and that was 550 B.C. That places the vision between the events of chapters 4 and 5, and about two years after the vision in chapter 7. So, interestingly enough, the structure of this chapter is nearly identical to 7. As I was outlining, I was going, gee, he does these exactly the same way. Every time. It's very, very consistent. In chapter 7, though, only one empire was named, and that was Babylon. Well, now he's adding two more that he's naming specifically, Persia and Greece. At this point, Daniel switched back to Hebrew, as I said. That's because this part focuses on Israel's future. Now, the vision picks up in verse 2, then. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. So in Daniel's vision, not actually, he was still in Babylon actually, but in his vision, he saw himself in the palace at Susa. Now Susa had been the capital of the Elamite kingdom, but it, in Daniel's time was the capital of the Babylonian province of Elam. It was about 200 miles from Babylon. Now, at that time, it was merely a, a provincial capital. It wasn't a big deal city-wise. But later on, it was going to be very significant. It was going to become the winter palace and main capital for the Persian kings. Matter of fact, the setting for the book of Esther, Susa. That's where it takes place. Um, and the first part of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the Persian king in the capital at Susa. 
So it becomes very important, though right now it's kind of you know diminished status. The word translated citadel means a castle or a palace. It's a stronghold. It's a fortress city. Um, the city of Susa, the modern city of Shush, always thought that was kind of a funny name, Shush, in southwestern Iran, it's located on the banks of the Chaor River, which in Akkadian was Ulai. You remember that? And turned out, when they investigated it archaeologically, that what they thought was a river was actually an artificial canal. And just as Daniel said, the Ulai Canal. Uh, it's near the Kirka River on the edge of the Mesopotamian Plain in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains, which are Iran. So it's right there on the border, which makes it a very key place strategically uh, between the plains of Mesopotamia, or we think in modern terms, Iraq. Uh, and the mountains that form the border of Iran. So Daniel looked up in his vision over this canal, which by the way was about 900 feet wide, about three football fields wide, so it's a big canal. Uh, he looked up in his vision and he saw a ram with two long unequal horns standing in front of the canal. And the longer horn grew up last kind of strange looking I imagine if you watch the horns growing out of the ram's head you know and when they're unequal I've never seen a ram with unequal horns I guess it can happen but I've never seen that um, the longer one grew up last that ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire and we'll see that spelled out explicitly in verse 20 here in the chapter the Persians came after the Medes but they passed them in influence and so that's why there's one horn coming up last the two parts of the empire, the Medes and the Persians, the Persians became more important than the original Medes. Then Daniel saw the ram butting to the west and to the north and to the south. You know how rams will do that. They'll, they'll uh, haul off and run at each other full tilt and bang heads. You know, that's how rams are. That's where we get the term ramming <laughs> something. Well, no other beast could stand before him. The ram did as he pleased. He was knocking them down right and left. He was the alpha ram, if you will. Uh, and not only did he do as he pleased, but he had a fine opinion of himself. He, ex he exalted himself. He exaggerated his reputation. So it means to magnify yourself. The Medo-Persian Empire's conquests were mainly to the west, just as it says, Asia Minor and Greece, to the north, Armenia, and to the south, Babylonia and Egypt. They didn't expand so much to the east. So those were the main directions that they expanded. The Hebrew word translated magnified himself means basically to grow up to become great, but here it's talking about their self-aggrandizement. They did it for themselves. Uh, it's been translated, it did as it pleased and it acted arrogantly. They thought they were cut above. Yeah, they were very impressed with themselves. Now world empires tend to do that, get impressed with themselves. We are the men and after us comes the deluge. Yeah, okay. Well, then, as Daniel was watching, there was a new player in the vision, the goat. Now you think ram, you think noble, and everything. You think goat, I think spraggly. Yeah, I'm not impressed with goats generally. But this goat was an impressive goat. 
While I was observing, Daniel said, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Usually goats have two horns. This one had one horn. Okay. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So while Daniel's watching in this vision, he saw a male goat coming from the west so rapidly that it seemed not to touch the ground. Just amazingly fast. That goat represents Greece. And we'll see that spelled out in verse 21 in the same chapter. And remember in the previous chapter, the symbol for Greece was a winged leopard. If a leopard is fast, they can run like 35 miles an hour. Um, then how fast is a winged leopard? You know, uh, very, very rapid. Well, in the same way, this goat, when he's running, he doesn't even seem to touch the ground. He's so fast. He had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And later on, we'll be told that that represents the Greek coalition's first king, Alexander the Great. With great speed, he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in the years between 334 and um, 4, 326 BC. Alexander conquered Greece, Egypt, Middle East, Asia Minor, Persia, and part of northern India and just an incredibly fast attack for that day and age. Now Daniel saw the goat rush at the ram with mighty anger. What were the Greeks mad about? Well, they were mad because Persia had invaded Greece twice, uh, as well as conquered Asia Minor, which was considered Greek territory, certainly Greek society. Well, in, uh, in uh, 547 B.C., Cyrus the Great conquered Ionia, which was on the coast of Asia Minor. Matter of fact, one of the major types of ancient Greek out there is Ionian Greek. There's Ionian, Doric, and Attic uh, Greek for the really, really, really old Greek stuff. So, in 499, though, the Ionians incited all of Asia Minor to rebel against the Persians. Now that upset the Persians. They thought they had this thing wrapped up. And Darius the Great finally crushed the Ionian revolt in 493 BC. But then in 492 Darius went one step further because Athens had supported the Ionians in their revolt. And so Darius said, you know, I'm going to punish those, those mainland Greek uh, Greeks and I'm going to punish Athens. So he decided to invade uh, Athens, uh, invade mainland Greece. That didn't go well for him. Uh, you may have heard of running a marathon event. Well, that's from a battle. The famous battle that took place in 490 BC on the plains of Marathon. It was about 26 miles from Athens. And the Persians were decisively defeated by a much smaller Greek force. I mean, the Greeks were outnumbered, I think it was about three to one. But they won. Anyway. And um, 
the uh, where you get the term marathon from is that there's one they carried messages by runners since I didn't have cell phones and <laughs> radios and that sort of thing and so the guy with the message that uh, that they won ran all the way from marathon to Athens and uh, collapsed uh, shouting one one final word Nike victory and then he died of a heart attack. Uh, <laughs> so that's running a marathon. Uh, hopefully you don't die of a, of a heart attack when you run your marathon. But, uh, yeah, so the Persians were defeated. And that was just a mind-boggling thing to the Persians that those Greeks beat them. Um, and then Darius died in 486 BC before he could, he could manage to re-attack them. Well, his son, Xerxes I, probably the husband of Esther, by the way, yeah, just to give a little background for that Bible book. But uh, Xerxes I decided he was going to avenge his father, so he invaded Greece a second time in 480 B.C. And there was a brave resistance initially. Uh, you may have heard of the Battle of Thermopylae and the four, 300 Spartans that held them off for several days, uh, held off tens of thousands of Persian soldiers. Well, that's because the pass is only about 50 feet wide. Uh, <laughs> and uh, those they knew how to fight in close quarters, I guess. And they managed to hold them for quite a while. But still, even with that brave uh, resistance, they went down and the Persians basically overran Greece temporarily. But again, the Greeks re, um, regrouped. There was a naval battle at Salamis that the Persians lost and then the Battle of Plataea. Um, the Persians were defeated soundly and had to retreat. Again, what a shame to them be beaten by what they considered ragtag, you know, a bunch of, of a few Greeks beating their huge army. Uh, in 479 BC, they had to retreat again. The Greeks, uh, therefore, had no love lost for the Persians. Uh, you can just imagine. <laughs> okay, and that was that was why the goat was en enraged. That's why Alexander's first target in his conquests. Persia. That enraged goat struck the ram, shattering his horns. The ram wasn't strong enough to resist him. The goat threw the ram to the ground, and he stomped on him. Okay? I mean, he thoroughly defeated him. No, nobody could rescue him. You could say this wasn't a case of road rage. This was a case of goat rage. Okay? <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Alexander the Great, he invaded Asia Minor um, in 334 BC. And he won victories over the Persians right away. He beat them at the Battle of the Granicus River in May of 334 BC. He beat them at the Battle of Isis in November of 333 BC. And he decisively defeated Darius III at... Um, uh, the last Persian ruler at the Battle of Gogamela, and uh, that's it. that was in what's now Iraq also, and that was October 331 BC. At that point, the remainder of the Persian Empire surrendered. We give up. At 330, by 330 BC, Alexander had taken over everything that was once Persia. Now, that Persian Empire, remember, it said had exalted itself. What does it say about the goat? He exalted himself exceedingly. So he outdid the Persians in exalting himself. He really thought he was cool. And yet, at the height of his power, that large horn was broken. And in its place, four conspicuous horns. 
What happened to Alexander? This young genius had military tactics, conquered the world with much smaller armies than those he went up against. He died at age 32, weeping that there were no more worlds left to conquer. Okay, which wasn't strictly speaking true, but his soldiers were tired. <laughs> at the age of 32, he died in Babylon on June 11th, that's uh, 330, 323 B.C., of malaria and alcoholism. Bad combination. But that's, there's some possibility he was, uh, he was poisoned, but that's probably not true. It was probably malaria, but his system was weakened because he'd become an alcoholic in big time. Now, what happened? His, you would think his son would inherit, right? He did have one son by a Persian princess, Roxanne. Alexander was his name. Uh, by the way, speaking of ego, you ever notice how many cities there are scattered across the Middle East called Alexandria? There's a ton of them. Every place he went, there's an Alexandria springs up, you know? How many do you need for your ego here? Yeah, but anyway, he, uh, after he... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. After he passed away, then it was actually four of his generals who end up in control. Um, Lysimachus received Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander received Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus received Syria, Babylonia, and all land to the east. And Ptolemy received Egypt. Uh, Palestine and Arabia. Now, uh, the very last uh, Ptolemy is famous. Uh, everybody knows of Cleopatra. She was a direct descendant of Paul, uh, Ptolemy. Um, and then, of course, the kingdom passed to the Romans. <laughs> so, There was a fifth contender, interestingly enough. His name was Antigonus. He didn't get anywhere. He was defeated. So Daniel's prophecy was literally fulfilled. His empire was not divided into three parts or five parts or six parts. It was divided into precisely four parts. Exactly as God had predicted. His son didn't inherit and Antigonus didn't get anywhere. But the other four generals did. So it happened just as Daniel predicted. Then we have a really strange figure. Somewhat reminiscent, though, because we had a little little horn in chapter 7. Remember that? Well, we've got a little horn here, too. Out of those four horns, Daniel said, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of the heavens and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression of the host will be given over to the horn among, along, with the regular sac excuse me, along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. One of the four divisions of Alexander's empire out of one of them, 
came forth a small horn that grew to be very great. The ruler referred to came from the Seleucid branch, the Syrian branch of Alexander's empire, and his name was Antiochus IV. He, had, he gave himself the subtitle Epiphanes. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now he expanded his kingdom toward the south. Egypt was in his sights. Uh, and toward the east, Armenia and Elam, okay, and toward the beautiful land. Well, <laughs> Daniel's a good Jew. What's the beautiful land? Israel. Eretz Yisrael. Nothing else could get that title from Daniel. But this little horn, though, we've got to be careful, because he's not the same one as in chapter 7. Critical difference is, in chapter 7, that little horn that we saw was the Antichrist comes out of the fourth empire, the Roman Empire. This one comes out of the third empire, the Greek empire. The horn grew up to the skies and caused some of the stars to fall to earth and trampled on it. This probably refers to, Alex, uh, to Antiochus, Antiochus's persecution of the Jews. Uh, the referring to them as the stars of heaven. You know, what was... Um, Abraham was promised that his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven number. You know, so think most most expositors think that's what he's referring to. Now, what happened was Antiochus IV attacked Egypt uh, for a second time uh, in 168 BC. But when he did that, Rome got nervous about this, and the Roman ambassador, Gaius Pompilius Linus, delivered a message to him personally, commanding him to withdraw or consider himself in a state of war with the Roman Republic. Antiochus replied that he would consider the message later. However, Pompilius whipped out his sword, drew a circle in the sand around him, and said, you need to reply before you leave this circle. <laughs> it's that simple. And you leave the circle without replying, you're at war. You want to take on Rome? And, you know, basically Antiochus, though he was enraged at the insult, decided discretion was a better part of valor, and so he withdrew. Now, that put him in a bad mood. Okay, if you're Antiochus Epiphanes, that was not a good day. While he was in Egypt, having himself humiliated by the Romans, the Jews heard a rumor that he was dead. And uh, so they rebelled against the high priest that he had installed, a guy named Menelaus, who was very pro-Greek. They rebelled against him and tried to reinstall the old high priest. Well, enraged by the Roman insult and then on top of it the Jewish revolt, Antiochus IV reconquered Jerusalem and he killed thousands, just slaughtered them, made them popular, yeah, I'm sure. He decided if he could, I guess, if he couldn't have respect, he'd settle for fear. And he got fear. He then decided that, you know, these Jews are too troublesome. I want them to become good Greeks. And so he tried to force them to abandon Judaism in favor of Greek paganism. He outlawed the scriptures. He outlawed, uh, you know, dietary restrictions like avoiding pork. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed keeping the Sabbath. And all on pain of death. So, you know, he, he you know, gave it a full court press to try to eliminate Judaism. And he even claimed to be equal with God. 
this was probably the breaking point. He minted coins that had, on, had written on them, King Antiochus, rather, God manifest, bearer of victory. Modest fellow. And he referred to himself as Epiphanes, which is God manifest. Yeah. Contemporaries called him Epimanes, which is madman, <laughs> instead of Epiphanes. Well, the horn removed the regular sacrifice from God. He threw down the sanctuary. Uh, the regular sacrifice of burnt offering that took place every morning and evening. And you can read about that in Exodus 29 or Romans 20, uh, excuse me, Numbers 28. But Antiochus went the farthest step here. He sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple. That's about as non-kosher as you get. Um, and he dedicated the temple to Zeus. This is the first time, uh, and Jesus said there's a future one coming in Matthew 24, where the abomination of desolation took place. That's, it, you know, how bad can this get? There's a statue of Zeus in the temple. There's pigs being sacrificed on the altar. And if you follow Judaism, you're dead if he catches you. The date of that sacrilege was the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev, which is roughly around, uh, around December, in 167 BC. The horn was allowed to do this. Why? On account of the transgression, it says. Transgression here, I think, refers to Israel's sin in yielding to the Hellenistic uh, influence. One angel asked how long it would continue. And Antiochus, Antiochus's policies had led the pious Israelis to revolt. Now they had the leadership of a family called the Maccabees. Uh, it's from, it, the Hebrew word Maccabi is from Mechabit, which means a hammer. Okay, the hammers. And uh, finally, after years of revolt, Yehuda Maccabi, or as we um, anglicize it, uh, Judas Maccabeus, uh, rededicated the temple on Kislev, 25, the same day, which happened that year to coincide with December 25th, okay, on Christmas Day, if you will, uh, 164 B.C. That event is celebrated as Hanukkah. Hanukkah means dedication. So it's the Feast of Dedication. They're still celebrating that today. Try and destroy us. We'll make another feast. Okay. <laughs> another angel replied that it would be 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's been defined a couple of ways, and I'm not sure, to be honest with you, which one's right. Uh, some have understood evenings and mornings to refer to the sacrifices, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, in which case it's 1,150 days. And some see it as being 2,300 days. If it's 1,150 days, then it's probably just talking about the time between the temple being desecrated and the temple being re, uh, rededicated. If it's talking about 2,300 days or six years, four months, and 20 days, that's probably talking about the period from 171 B.C. when the uh, high priest Onius III was deposed or actually assassinated and replaced by a high priest of Antiochus's choosing uh, to the time of the rededication of the temple. But the important thing, whichever way you work it out, is it comes to a head at the temple being rede rededicated. I used to say that Hanukkah was unique in being an Old Testament, uh, I mean being a Jewish holiday that's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but actually it is prophetically. It's mentioned in Daniel 
Uh, it's mentioned in the New Testament in John chapter 10 uh, as an existing thing. Well, the interpretation. First of all, Gabriel is identified as the interpreter. Uh, Dan when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, when, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep in my, with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Daniel wanted to understand the vision he had seen, and it was perplexing to him. Suddenly, one of those standing before him, who appeared human, came to him. And a voice called out over the canal and ordered that being to give an understanding of the vision to Daniel. That being is addressed as Gabriel. This, by the way, is the first time in the Bible that an angel is actually named. Uh, they appear, but it's the first time one is named, aside from a fallen angel, Satan. Um, the Hebrew word translated Gabriel means man of God. Great name. And he also, uh, according to Luke chapter 1, announced the births of John the Baptist and of Jesus. So he, he's a great one for carrying messages. Um, the only other angel that's mentioned by name in the Bible is Mikael or Michael. His name means who is like God. Uh, he's the only other one named. And he appears to have the, the job of being the particular protector of Israel. Now, the approach of Gabriel frightened Daniel, caused him to fall on his face. Uh, one, one fellow has commented that uh, you look at, you look at uh, pictures of angels in classical paintings, and it's like they all want to say, they're there, you know. But when you see a real angel, the reaction is fear. Uh, they, they scare people. They always, the angels are always having to say, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know. They're not little chubby cherubs. <laughs> you know? Well, this mighty being comes to Daniel and scares him so much he faints and the angel has to pick him up on his feet again. He, the angel doesn't say this vision is entirely about the end times, but rather that it pertains to the time of the end. Or, as another translation has it, you must understand the events you've seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. So Antiochus IV is a historical person, and these predictions are about him. But he prefigures somebody. He prefigures the Antichrist. Paul writes concerning the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction, the who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, the points of comparison between Antiochus IV and, and the Antichrist, those are pretty clear. Claiming divi divinity, persecuting God's people, leading apostasy. 
But he's not literally the Antichrist. It can be like saying the Antichrist is another Hitler. Or like Hal Lindsey is fond of saying, a future Fuhrer. Okay? But Hitler was not the Antichrist. Actually, the Antichrist is going to make Hitler look like a choir boy. But the, the comparison is still there. It does reveal something to what we can expect from this other person. Gabriel mentioned that these coming events were part of the time of, called a period of indignation. The period of indignation refers to God's judgment on Israel for her sins, and it lasts from the Babylonian exile to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Kind of coincides with the times of the Gentiles, because Israel had sinned. Moses warned them. You know, that, that if they turned away from the Lord, says, then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It will come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which your fathers have not known. Among those nations you will find no rest and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life will hang in doubt before you and you will be in dread night and day and will have no assurance of your life. In the morning you will say, would that it were evening. And at evening you will say, would that it were morning. Because of the dread of your heart, which you dread. And for the sight of your eyes, which you will see. That's in Deuteronomy 28. Tragically, that's been fulfilled. That's how it's been for, for the Israelis for a couple thousand years. Now, the angel goes on to clarify that the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And we've already talked about that some, but, you know, Persia extended their empire with an army of a couple million soldiers. That was a lot for the ancient world. But it tended to rely on numbers, not on strategy. The Greeks are, the, are represented by the goat, the angel explains. The shaggy goat represents the first kingdom of Greece, the large horn between the eyes of the first king. Uh, that large horn, of course, Alexander the Great, we've talked about. The four divisions of Alexander's empire, then, is the next thing the angel reveals. The broken horn and the four horns which arose in its place represent four kingdoms that arise from its nation, though not with its power. And again, we've talked about that already. We've seen that that happened historically when Alexander's empire was divided among his four generals. And then it focuses on Antiochus Epiphanes. In the later period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the mornings and evenings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future.
this section is in poetic form. It's actually, you know, Gabriel, Angel Gabriel's a poet. Uh, <laughs> but he was pointing out that God held back his judgment until the transgressors have run their course. When those in Israel that were flirting with Hellenistic paganism had ran their course, when rebels had become completely wicked, the NIV says, or when their rebellious acts were complete, when their sin was complete, God allowed the arising of Antiochus IV. He's insolent, or literally he's a king of fierce countenance, or perhaps as the Septuagint has it, a king of bold or shameless face. Uh, he's a impudent king, is another possible translation. And he wasn't by his own power. He was energized by Satan to pursue God's people, to persecute them. He magnified himself in his heart. Or as another translation has, in his own mind he makes himself great. <laughs> he was a legend in his own mind. Yeah. But by desecrating the temple and assuming divine prerogatives, he opposed even God. Nevertheless, as it was prophesied, he met his end suddenly and without human agency. Nobody killed him. He got a terrible disease and lost his mind and died insane in Persia in 164 B.C. So Gabriel affirmed the certainty of this vision, but commanded Daniel to keep it confidential and confirmed that this, this uh, vision had application to many days in the future. Now, these events were approximately 366 years in the future from Daniel's time. Who but God can tell somebody what's going to happen almost four centuries in the future? You know, we can't predict what's going to happen in the next election. You know, <laughs> this is history written in advance. But in addition, the career of Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows the career of the future Antichrist. Then the conclusion, Daniel, it said, Then I, Daniel, verse 27, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at this vision, and there was none to explain it. Daniel was overwhelmed by what he had seen, so much so that he was sick for a while. He couldn't understand how events like this persecution could happen. That was a mind-boggling thing for him, the horror of what was to come. Now, how do we apply this? Well, prophetically, Daniel proves the inspiration of Scripture, if nothing else did, by accurately predicting the future centuries in advance. There's just no other way that this could be. And, prophetically, we do need to keep in focus that Antiochus tells, him, tells us something about what the future persecutor of Israel, the Antichrist, will be. Personally, what does it mean to us? What can you draw from this? I think one thing I get from this is that no matter how crazy the world gets, and imagine how it looked to a Jew under Antiochus' persecution. He'd look around and go, has the world gone mad? And yet, if he had the scroll of Daniel, he knew God's in control. No matter how crazy the world gets, God is in control. And look at those mighty figures that were shattered. Alexander the Great. God brought him down. Antiochus IV, the great persecutor, 
God humbled him, brought him down. No matter how mighty the oppressor, God is mightier still. There is nobody that can compare to him. And he is ultimately not only in control, but he has the last say. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that our world is not spinning out of control as we fear, but you are the king, the true king. Lord, we just rest our fate in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.